This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast, where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. I'm Peter Bowes, and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging, really encapsulates what we're all about, the philosophy being that there is much we can do to optimize our natural health span, as opposed to lifespan, or the length of time when we enjoy the best of health. Today, my guest is one of the world's leading researchers in this area. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Walter Longo to the podcast. I've come to meet Walter at the University of Southern California, USC, where he is the director of the Longevity Institute at the School of Gerontology. Walter Longo is a cell biologist and specializes in studying the mechanisms that control aging. Walter, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You are, in fact, my first guest on this podcast, and I should say that we've known each other for a few years, and in part, this podcast is inspired by my tiny role in some of your work. I was one of the volunteers a few years back in a clinical trial that you carried out here at USC. It was looking at a diet that mimics fasting, and we'll talk about that and its relevance in a moment. But first, I'm curious to know if there's something that happened in your life, maybe your upbringing, that sparked an interest in your mind in human longevity. I'm not sure. I think that I was 19 and I was a music student in Texas when I decided that I didn't want, did not want to pursue music anymore, or at least not music education. Aging seemed to me the natural thing to do. I was really impressed with the scientific challenge but also I realized, I think, early on how powerful it could be against so many diseases, thinking about the fact that all the people that I knew that were sick, in most cases, were, were old or very old. And what sort of upbringing did you have? You Obviously, you were born in Italy. What was your life like as a child? As a child, I was a musician primarily, and, and I grew up in both northern Italy and southern Italy, in southern Italy, I think I was lucky in a nutritional sense because I was in uh, two of the regions of Italy that has some of the healthiest food that uh, is still around, at, at least in Italy. And this is Calabria in the south and Liguria in the north, particularly Genova, the, the hometown of Christopher Columbus, and in, in the south uh, a place called uh, Gioia Tauro. Uh, where recently we found out there are many uh, centenarians, or at least there is a high prevalence of centenarians. And were you conscious of longevity and, and the fact that some of the people around you were living, some might think, exceptionally long, unhealthy lives, and, and that was related to their lifestyle? Or was it just the way that you all live in those communities? No, it was the way uh, we lived. And I think it was also some of these areas were fairly poor. I mean, for different reasons, the South uh, was always poor. It, it still is relatively poor. And the North, uh, Genova, is an area where it was often under attack by pirates. And other cities like Pisa used to attack all the time. So Genova was very uh, used to uh, luck 
be locked in and everybody had to survive potentially for months while Pisa was, uh, the fleet of, of Pisa was sitting out and waiting to attack, right? So things like minestrone uh, were very common. I mean, of course, minestrone comes from all over the, the places, but uh, one of the places where it developed independently is Liguria and Genova, uh, just because, again, they will be sealed inside of the city and they just had to u- utilize all the ingredients that they had left over. And, of course, the ones that could last a very long time, like dried beans, for example, or some of the grains that, that could be uh, stored for long periods. But at this stage, your focus was on music. Is that what brought you to the United States? Yes, yes. I, I came to the U.S. to be a rock star. So <laughs> it was the plan, and I actually kept playing until my last year in the Ph.D. Uh, program at UCLA, where somebody told me, uh, you're just going to have to pick one of the two things. And uh, we were still touring, actually. I had a band in Los Angeles, and uh, we were still touring all the way to the almost the end of my uh, Ph.D. studies. But I think, you know, as, as I finished uh, the Ph.D., I realized that to excel in, in either one or the other, I had to focus, and so I picked uh, science. What was the band called? The band was called D.O.T. So this is a band that was formed in 92 and survived about five years. Uh, We also had what's called a development uh, contract with Interscope Records. You know, we were doing pretty good. uh, So you were on the cusp of perhaps becoming a rock star one day. I have to say I was one of the few people in town that were trained by a top jazz program. I I studied jazz in, in, in Texas in a very, very good school. And so I had a little bit of an advantage in this sense. I was a rock player with uh, was very much trained in jazz and other uh, uh, styles. So I think, I, I, you know, it would have been interesting to see what, what would have happened. But certainly I was, uh, I was doing okay. So you had to make that decision between science and music. It's quite a leap, isn't it, to, from becoming the, the rock star that you might have been to cell biology? Yes and no. I think that... Um, really, science uh, is a perfect place for a musician, right? Because it's really um, a place that allows you to uh, compose in the scientific domain, if you will, right? So you, you look for novel uh, ways to, to think of, of, of subjects. And then, you know, in music, you have to solve a, a, uh, a composition problem. Here, you have to solve a... Uh, a scientific or medical problem, but uh, I think creativity is at the center of both. So the the transition is quite smooth, and you'd be surprised how many scientists are also musicians. So how did you start? What what was your first... I know you worked with uh, Roy Walford, who is one of the the greats in the area of longevity. He was one of the pioneers in in terms of the the thinking that still prevails today about diet and, and calorie restriction. He was a mentor of yours, wasn't he? Yes, uh, so uh, Roy was my first mentor at UCLA, and he was uh, very much a pioneer in the aging and color restriction field, and he was a very creative person, by the way. He was very involved in theater and had all kinds of other artistic uh, activities that he was, he was carrying on, but um, yeah, he was a medical doctor at UCLA and uh, very, very much uh, interested in, in uh living as long as possible or, or making people live as long as possible. And and when I first got to uh, UCLA, Roy was actually 
in uh, not there, he was in Biosphere 2, which was a, uh, an area in Arizona where he and other seven people decided to lock themselves up in, and they stayed there for two years. And that was the first at least known human color restriction study because the Roy was able to convince everybody that to avoid running out of food, this was not a, a, a scheduled experiment. It happened that they were running out of food because the, uh, the oxygen levels decreased in Biosphere 2. And so Roy was the world expert on color restriction, said, you know, why don't we, why don't we just color restrict so that way we save food? And, uh, and they all followed his, his idea. And so this was the first human study on color restriction, which uh, gave impressive results, impressive results. What was impressive about it? If you look at the blood profile from these eight people, for example, blood pressure, you see their blood pressure before they go in, it's about 110, systolic. Two months after they're in, in Biosphere 2 and they're color restricted, it goes down to 85. Their systolic blood pressure. So now they have blood pressure of 85 over 55. Um, I'm just have, thinking this is the number at the top when you get your regular blood pressure. It's the systolic and diastolic at the bottom. Exactly. Right. So their systolic was extremely low. Cholesterol dropped down to very low levels. Blood glucose dropped down to very low levels. And so if a cardiologist saw the, the, this group of people and the numbers and the biochemical profile they, I think most cardiologists will say this person will never develop a, a, a cardiovascular uh, disease. At the same time, they were extremely thin. And so probably this was also the first evidence. And I was there when they came out of Biosphere 2 uh, in 1993, I think. And they looked very too thin. They, they were too thin. And so this is probably starting to... Uh, show the side effects of color restriction, right? So it's very good for all kinds of things, all major diseases, but probably very bad for all the little things that can kill you in your life. And, and this, not surprisingly, Roy died about 10 years later of a rare motor neuron disease. And a lot of people suspect that maybe these extreme conditions and restriction in Biosphere 2 could have contributed to this unusual disease. And he continued after coming out of the biosphere, he continued that calorie restriction lifestyle. He, he firmly believed in it, didn't he? Yes, he firmly believed it, but it was no comparison to when he was in. So I always show the pictures of, of Roy Walford in Biosphere 2 while calorie-restricted with a BMI of probably 18 or so. And then I show the pictures of, of, of Roy Walford a year later, a year and a half later, and he looks much healthier, so probably he was not severely restricted. It's probably a, a very minor restriction, but certainly he was watching everything that he was consuming. So I think that he, he had a very good and healthy diet, uh, but not necessarily a severely calorie-restricted diet uh, later. And looking at the positive sides of, of calorie restriction, uh, leaving aside some of the more serious health problems that he had, I interviewed him in 1999 at his home in Santa Monica and asked him about the fact that he was doing what a lot of people simply cannot conceive of doing in terms of their lifestyles. And he said to me, he said, it's a choice that you have to make. He said, you're healthier during all of that time. You need less sleep. You're intellectually stimulated. You're kind of wired. There's an increased sense of well-being 
and vitality. And then he finished by saying, if you want to trade all of that to eat cake, then I say, go ahead and eat cake. He was pragmatic about it, wasn't he? Yes, he was pragmatic. I think the the unfortunate part for Roy was that he did not have what happened next, right, which was the longevity revolution. And he did not have all the data from maybe 10 of us, 10, 10 groups around the United States and the genetics of aging and the mechanisms. And so I think he did about all he could do to make a difference, but it was too early and without the tools that we ended up having later, knowing how each nutrient regulates different genes, and now you can get, get the good without activating the bad. So without that, I think it was impossible an impossible task for him. This is why he's a pioneer, uh, because uh, you know he did it uh, even in the dark a little bit, if you if you will, you know, without knowing why calorie restriction does what it does and what could be dangerous about it. Well, science evolves, and of course you are part of that evolving science and the work that you've gone on to do here at the University of Southern California. So what was your next move after working with Roy Walford? How did your career develop? Well, when I was uh, with Roy, we were doing a lot of comparison, and this had been the field for probably hundreds of years. Right? You compare somebody young and somebody old. We were comparing young mice and old mice. And it just didn't go anywhere. I realize young people, old people, young mice, old mice, so what? And there's a lot of differences, and you mark everything down, and then you're as lost as you were before, if not more. And so then I decided I can't keep doing this. I got to take a, um, a little bit of a, a gamble and then go back to simple organisms, and that's, that was my decision so I said, well, I knew that in using baker's yeast and bacteria, we could get a lot better idea genetically about the uh, mechanisms of aging. And so I, I worked a little bit on bacteria, but then I, I started uh, working on, on this unicellular organism called yeast Saccharomyces cerevisia. And I came up with this new method to study aging called chronological lifespan. And so extremely simple organism then I came up with this new method that allowed me to measure its aging in a much easier way than what was available at the time. And that really opened up an incredible combination, I think, you know, that very quickly allowed me to identify some of the, what are now recognized as some of the most important genes uh, in the, the promote aging. And what you noticed, paraphrasing the results of, of several years of your work, was that different organisms, that calorie restriction and fasting, had similar consequences in terms of aging and adding to the lifespan of whether it's yeast or a fly or a mouse, that you, you yeah. saw similarities and, and therefore you put two and two together to say that this is a, a common pathway. Yes, so the, 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 the initial finding was bacteria and yeast, right? So one is a prokaryote and one is a eukaryote. They're very much distant from each other in a, in a phylogenetic uh, tree. So if they were starved, they would both live longer and became resistant to stress. They became very protected. And so that was really, uh, to me, was really key in, uh, in start thinking about, and this was, Star, complete starvation. So you take yeast and, and take them out of all these nutrients and put them in water, and all of a sudden they live a lot longer and became very protected. Very counterintuitive, right? But I saw it 
I was in the laboratory of Steve Clark for a few months, and I saw it in Steve Clark's lab, and then I saw it again in the lab of John Valentine, where my, my mentor, my, my third mentor, if you will, at UCLA. And then I said, well, there is something to this fasting that is very, very powerful and very ancient. And my guess is it's going to be present and active or activatable in all organisms. And that was, of course, a big gamble. Of course, the big gamble was the genes and the mechanisms are the same A between a simple organism and humans. Everybody was laughing at this. They thought it was a joke. And then fasting, another crazy idea, uh, could be applied from the simple organism all the way to humans. And uh, that was even a stranger to the point that the second one I had to put on hold for a decade because... It was just too much, you know. So focus, I focused on the genetics, and then eventually, when we were ready, I went back to the fasting, uh, which I already had published on in both yeast and, and bacteria. But uh, I went back to the fasting to uh, as a way to uh, to affect uh, uh, longevity. It is for a lot of people. It is a big leap to go from yeast to mice, and then eventually to humans. And we'll talk about humans in, in detail in a second. But first of all, just help us understand a little bit more. In terms of fasting and, and mice, and I've seen your mice in this building, the, the, the larger, the overweight mice, and the tiny little mice that, that live significantly longer. So why do they have extended lives? What are you doing to them in terms of their food, their dietary regime, or something else that allows them to live longer? Yes, yeah, so there are uh, several ways uh, that you can uh, make them live longer. And there are genetic ways. Uh, we basically alter their genes, and particularly genes in this pathway called growth hormone uh, IGF-1 pathway. So if you take away from the mice the receptor of growth hormone, then meaning that the growth hormone no longer is able to, to trigger these pro-growth Signals and just uh, just to explain just a sec, IGF one is insulin-like growth factor one. It's something that's produced in the liver and it's it's crucial for growth and especially for for younger animals and, and in humans as, as children, just to attain a, a normal height and for the various functions involved in growth and cell duplication. Correct. So, growth hormone uh, activates this IGF one insulin-like growth factor one produced by the liver, as you just mentioned. Which, uh, which then is central for the growth of an individual. And, and, also, and, we, and we all have it. It, it. It's crucial to life. And we all have it. It's, it's not crucial to life. In, in the liver um, produce IGF-1 is not crucial. And in fact, we know that the uh, individuals, both the mice and individuals, they have extremely low levels of IGF-1, circulating IGF-1, which comes from the liver. They do fine. But uh, the IGF-1 is also made by all kinds of cells. And so that is crucial, right? So if you don't have any activity of IGF-1 anywhere, then you have a problem. But uh, if mutations are um, applied to these organisms in these genes, then these organisms live longer. And this is true for a yeast, which becomes dwarf when it does not have this uh, signal, these growth genes. Uh, it is true for a worm and it's true for a fly, and it's true for a mouse. And now uh, we have been doing uh, work on um, people uh, that lack the growth hormone receptor, so that they have uh, deficiency in these growth genes, 
and they also may be a little bit longer lived, but certainly they seem to be protected against age-related diseases. And so we suspect that the effect of these growth genes on aging is conserved, in fact, from all the way from yeast to humans. And, of course, uh, the complexity is very, very different between uh, these organisms. But uh, I think that in an era where everybody is trying to personalize everything in medicine and in science, we uh, have moved exactly in the opposite direction and said uh, what is common to not just people, but what is common between a mouse and a person and even a single unicellular organism in a, in a person. So uh, that doesn't mean that the personalization is not very important. It's just that, that maybe by uh, looking so much and only at personalization, we forgot the big picture, which is some properties are the same for everybody. And uh, so, for example, I always use the glucose example. If some, you give somebody glucose, uh, it'd be very hard to find somebody that, whose insulin levels do not increase in response to glucose. It doesn't matter what genetic makeup you have and whether you're Asian or, or Caucasian or, or, uh, or Hispanic, uh, you still have the same response. Now, you mentioned studies with people that have uh, very low levels of IGF-1. That area of your research has been absolutely pivotal and crucial to, to your understanding of the role of, of IGF-1 and of fasting as well. Can you explain how that all came about, how you found this community of people and what their significance is? Yes, we started uh, with the identification of TOR and, uh, and the role of the TOR gene, which is a growth gene that acts downstream of growth hormone and IGF-1. And uh, so we knew that this dwarf yeast uh, were super long-lived. And then people published that the drosophila, they were very small dwarf, and they were lacking the activity of these growth genes, particularly insulin and IGF-1. They had record longevity. And the, uh, the Barkey, and, uh, and this was worked by Linda Partridge and Mark Taylor, and then the Barkey and Kopchik labs, labs had shown the mice that were lacking either growth hormone or growth hormone receptor and therefore had very low levels of IGF-1, they had record longevity. And then, uh, so this was early, maybe around 2001, 2002, we had all this information, and we, I was just very surprised that nobody was looking at the people and was asking the question, well, if this is all true and it's all conserved, uh, well, what about people that have the same problem, which may in fact be a solution? And then I first had contacted Svilaron, and I knew that he was uh, following uh, some of these uh, uh, subjects that had low, very low levels of IGF-1. And, and Svilaron is an Israeli scientist? He's an Israeli scientist that there was, uh, was the first to describe the, the Laron syndrome, which is the, the syndrome uh, characterized by very low levels of IGF-1 and, and insulin. And, and people who exhibit this, they are generally dwarf. They, they're about three, three and a half feet tall. Yes, so they're, they're, they're very small, but they're otherwise fairly normal, so they're relatively proportional. And, and the puzzle initially was, why are they small? And, and it wasn't because they lacked growth hormone. They had growth hormone Yes, they, this was the, the discovery of Zvilaron, uh, who showed that they actually, surprisingly, had very high levels of growth hormone, but very low levels of IGF-1. And so then uh, from there... 
someone, and I'm not sure who it was, but certainly someone uh, together with Villaron figured out that there was a problem in the receptor. So the the key was there, but the lock was damaged, and therefore the key could not open the door that generates IGF-1. And just to explain that a little bit more, essentially the key on the door, it's, it's the receptor, it's the growth hormone that initiates the opening of the lock, which causes the IGF-1 to be produced by the liver. Correct. So the, the key is growth hormone. The lock is growth hormone receptor, which is uh, closes the door of the liver, which produces um, IGF-1. So if you don't open the, open the door, the, the IGF-1 doesn't come out. And so this is a process. This is a function that's happening in all of us all of the time. It, it's, it's a normal bodily function that people with Laron syndrome, because they have the defective receptor, cannot achieve. Exactly, yes. They do not have the ability to make, uh, or they have a very, very severely inhibited ability to make IGF-1 in the presence of growth hormone. So they have very high levels of growth hormone, but make very low IGF-1. And the suspicion is, based on a lot of data from all these different organisms, is that the IGF-1, but not just IGF-1, insulin, IGF-1, and also growth hormone, receptor acting independently of insulin and IGF-1. So together, all of these, they promote growth and cellular division, not just growth in the sense of size, but also in the sense of taking a cell and and pushing this cell to divide, to generate another cell. And um, so so when when you have low levels of growth hormone, then uh, all these genes are, the activity of all the genes is lower, and the system turns into what we call a maintenance mode, a mode in which it's focusing much more on protection than on trying to grow and reproduce. So a large community of people with Laurent syndrome exists in Ecuador. There are other smaller communities scattered around Europe, but the key population that you've managed to study is in Ecuador. How did that happen? How did that come about for you? That came about because uh, um, of this article that I, I wrote for Science and then a colleague of mine from UCLA, Hasi Cohen, said that after seeing that we were interested in the human equivalent, uh, he said, well, the, the biggest population all in one place or in a relatively close place of these Larons or these growth hormone receptor deficient subjects is in, in Ecuador. And Jaime Guevara is the doctor of all of them, pretty much. And so as soon as I heard that, I thought, this is, this is too good. And so I immediately, within months, invited Jaime Guevara to come up to Los Angeles to give a talk and, and tell us all about his patients. And, um, and he, he's based in Quito, in the capital of Ecuador. He's based in Quito. And so Jaime came up, and then since then, he's been coming up to uh, the U.S. or I've been uh, going down or both. And it, already from the beginning, it was obvious that the story looked very promising. We knew that several people in the um, the Laron, as V. Laron was falling, made it through their, their 90s. And now uh, Jaime was basically saying, I don't see cancer. I don't remember seeing cancer in any of them. And also, I don't remember seeing diabetes in any of them. In any of them. And, of course, we were very interested in diabetes and cancer because John Kapchik had shown and Andre Barkey had shown that the mice that had the same type of mutation were protected from cancer and diabetes. 
And we knew the yeast, the dwarf yeast, was very much protected from DNA damage during aging. So, yeah, those, the, the question then was, uh, are they protected? And uh, it took us a while. But eventually, in 2011, we were able to publish a paper in Science Translational Medicine showing that, in fact, they were protected from cancer and diabetes, and probably uh, this protection was due to the regulation of some of the usual suspects, some of the same genes that we had described in yeast and the others had described for other organisms to be uh, very important for aging, TOR, PKA, RAS, etc. So this is absolutely crucial for you. Here you have, at last, a, a human population exhibiting the same traits, the same longevity without major disease as you had previously shown in the laboratory. And you, so you've, you've managed to join the dots, in a sense. Yes, and most people, if you think about it, most people that work on whatever gene, whatever mechanism of interest, never get that opportunity particularly because we didn't have to do anything. I mean, they were there. We didn't ask him to do anything different. We just, in having the uh, advantage of knowing Jaime, we were able to go back and say, well, what happened for the last 30 years, right? Did they develop any cancer? In the, did anybody ever develop any cancer? And so it was really great. And, and we knew there was real data because Jaime was the doctor, and Jaime's also a scientist. So... You know, most of the times, if you go to the field, you never know what you're going to get. You get a lot of stories. You don't know if the birth certificate is correct. You don't know if somebody said they died of, of one disease. Maybe it's not true. Maybe they died of something else. And, but having the doctor there and trusting the doctor, this was, uh, was really a remarkable opportunity. And just to in- explain what this work involves that you've been doing with Jaime, I was there in, in Ecuador with you a year or so ago, and you're talking about a community that's spread over quite a large area. This is southern Ecuador, remote mountainous communities. It can be a long, long drive over a, a bumpy road just to, to meet one family and to gather the data and then to cross-reference it with local hospitals. This is a major study, isn't it? And as you say, over a long period of time. Yes, yes. This is why it took five years. And uh, I think that you want to go slow and, and get the sense that everything you're collecting is real. And it's funny because... Um, one time I was there, and, and people were telling me we're going to Vilcabamba, and, and everybody started laughing. And I asked, well, why is everybody laughing about Vilcabamba? Vilcabamba was supposed to be this, this South American uh, city that had all these centenarians. And everybody's laughing. It's like, we all know that there are no centenarians in Vilcabamba. It's just for the journalists. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was a myth. And so everybody was making it up. Uh, they were making up the fact that they were much older than they were. And uh, so the, the, the journalists will go. And then finally, well, I, sent news. Some, yeah. <laughs> finally I sent some journalists to the, to the city hall. And I said, go check it. And there was not a single, I mean, at least that's what they told me, there was not a single uh, person over the age of 100 in Vilcabamba. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it was very important to go visit all of them, to ask three or four people. We know this person died. The records were available, or ask multiple people, what did he die of? You know, what were the symptoms? What, can, can we see the medical uh, papers, et cetera, et cetera? And, uh, and then it was also important. We took the blood, we shipped it to Los Angeles, and then we started doing tests on the blood. And so we, we already published two papers clearly showing the, the second paper clearly showing the diabetes and insulin sensitivity effect, meaning that even though they are overweight, or more overweight than their relatives and more obese than their relatives. 
And every endocrinologist in the world will say they're, of course, at a higher risk or much higher risk for diabetes. Uh, they're very much protected from diabetes. And that alone, I think, is an incredible discovery because it's really a dogma. Yeah. Obesity equals diabetes. Insulin resistance equals eventually diabetes. And so not a single one of them has so far developed diabetes. And, um, and you, you still need to fully understand what's happening there as to, to why they don't seem to develop diabetes, even though they're f- overweight, they, have, they carry a lot of fat, but this isn't fatty liver, this is subcutaneous fat, it's tummy fat. It's right, fat. right. So we, we looked at fatty liver, and they, don't, they seem to have an, an advantage as far as fatty liver. But the reason uh, we, are n- we now published last year that they don't develop uh, uh, diabetes is because they're insulin sensitive. So their cells respond better to insulin, so bring glucose into the cell better and not worse, as you will expect from somebody overweight or obese. And this is really very surprising to anybody that knows anything about this, this field. And then cancer is actually a different explanation. And for cancer, I think it's more of the fundamental effect on aging, which is... Uh, conserved from, from yeast all the way to, to mice. And so they're just aging more slowly. The DNA gets damaged less. And, uh, and that was one of the things we confirmed with their cells. And the other finding was their cells seem to get damaged uh, or, or their blood seems to be very protective against DNA damage. But then once the cell did become damaged, they were much more likely to be killed. Right? So they're really a very powerful dual effect preventing cancer and you know not surprisingly only one person thus far has uh, developed cancer and also Svilaron in, in his surveys I mean he did it from the distance with send, just sending surveys to people but still thus far at least as far as we know there has not been a single report of cancer in his uh, about 250 subject population that he follows from from the distance yet people with Laron syndrome don't live exceptionally long lives. You, you might think from what you're saying, they don't develop cancer, they don't develop diabetes, that they would live significantly longer than the rest of us. But, but they, they don't really, do they? Yes, they don't. But one, I mean, we don't know the reason, but you've been there and you know how they eat, right? They eat a lot and they eat very poorly. And so when I first showed up, I, I told Amy, Jaime, we're going to have a problem, right? Because the, the, it, these guys eat like this. I mean, how could they possibly? It doesn't matter what mutations they have but uh, so there is a study by Andrew Barkey that shows that if you take growth hormone deficient mice, they live about 50% longer than normal. And this is record longevity already, record for a mammal longevity extension by a mutation. If you then calorie restrict them, so you put them on a very good diet, they live up to twice as long, right? So that's what makes us think uh, these people in Ecuador probably have the potential. I mean, we don't know, right? But but certainly, based on the mouse studies, they probably have the potential to live a lot longer. And they probably live a little bit longer. But to live a lot longer, they will have to become calorie-restricted. And so, so not only are they normal weight, but they're more overweight, more obese than everybody else. And we think that this probably is causing some countering uh, effect that dampens their ability to, uh, to make it to you know, 110 and perhaps be given guidance in other aspects of their lives as well. There's a higher, I think, the normal level of, of depression, suicides, uh, relatively high 
and just everyday accidents and that kind of thing. That's was the side effect of being of being short and not being seen in the roads. I gather from Jaime that those are also factors that come into them not living exceptionally long. Yeah, psychological, I, I don't know. Um, I would like to see Jaime's data on that. I mean, I don't think uh, he's ever produced data on that. But um, um, they seem to be quite happy, actually. Uh, you met That's him, what I and, thought. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I didn't see that. What I do know, and I've seen that, is that they drink a lot, or some of them drink a lot. And, and, uh, and the conditions down there, uh, the safety is not the greatest. Uh, so there has been a number of accidents and possibly other problems related to alcohol drinking or, or, or other bad behaviors. Uh, smoking, certainly. They do smoke, and some of them smoke a lot. Yet they still don't develop cancer. Yeah, they still don't develop cancer. Not a single lung cancer case uh, uh, so far. So the remarkable, remarkable thing, if you think about the fact that a Laurent mouse uh, lives 50% longer, and yet half of them will never develop any pathological lesion that you can observe, and this is only 5 to 10% in the control mice, right? So the fact that we're seeing the same thing in people, it's just extraordinary. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I'm extremely biased, but... Uh, but uh, I mean, half of the budget of the NIH should go to this, right? If you say it's now very convincing that you can intervene in one single shot. I mean, it doesn't have to be the growth hormone receptor. I'm just saying towards this idea that you can act on the aging process. And that uh, now doesn't only reduce one problem and then create another, like most drugs, uh, but it really goes after... Uh, making the uh, protecting the system all the way to death. So, so not only did they get much less diseases per time lived, which is health span, they get much less diseases even though they live 50% longer, right? If you could reach 10%, 10% this in humans in the next 20 years, it will already be as much of an achievement as the rest of the research is done. I mean, this is how, how big of a deal it is. And yet there is almost no funds available for this. So it's, it's really uh, surprising. Well, let, help me then complete the circle, if you like, in terms of joining the dots with what you are doing now here at USC and your work and your studies involving fasting and calorie restriction. How does your knowledge that you've gained over the years from, from mice to people with Laurent syndrome in Ecuador and further afield, how does that relate to what you're doing with fasting? Well, first we started with, with dietary intervention. So, for example, you can uh, restrict proteins, and that will affect the level and signaling of these growth genes, right? And then on the other side, you can restrict sugar, and that'll affect the activity of some other pro, at least cell division genes. And so fasting includes both, right? So it combines the protein, the restriction, and the sugar restriction all at once. And that was the original idea, right? So you fast, and this is why it's working very well. But then we realized that there was more to it, much more to it than this, which was when you fast, the biggest advantage consequent to this affecting these pro-growth pathways, is you shrink the organism. So why? Well, because the organism has to save energy, and so has to start slowing down what it does, but also start breaking down components. I always talk about, you know, imagine a train that was made of wood, and it burned wood uh, in the locomotive, 
it's not going to make it to its next destination. So it starts taking, the machinist takes the, the chairs and burns them, right? And that's what the body does. It just starts using its own component for fuel, for combustion. And so that turned out probably one of the most powerful parts of, of fasting and fasting mimicking diets that the system, whether it's the liver, the muscle, the blood system, even parts of the nervous system, they are in, in the immune system, they are killed. You kill a lot of cells, many of which are bad cells, damaged cells. And then you stand by until food comes around again. So these cycles of starvation and refeeding are able to get rid of a lot of bad cells, turn on the protective systems, but then turn on also the regeneration system. So turn on the stem cells and then rebuild whatever was broken down during the starvation. So fasting from a multitude of areas, fasting is good for you. I would say fasting is not good for you in this sense. Fasting is a little bit like chronic calorie restriction, right? If you think about water-only fasting, it's a little bit like chronic calorie restriction. It's good for you, but it's also bad for you, right? You're going to get the good and you're going to get the bad, right? And why? Well, because it's so extreme that the body, yes, is going to get the breakdown. Yes, it's going to get a lot of these uh, uh, protective and regenerating effects. But then you really put the subject in danger. For example, during fasting, water-only fasting, if you get an infectious disease, you might be in trouble, right? You might be exposed to pneumonia, meningitis, right? And, and because it knocks down your immune system. It clearly knocks down immune, no doubt, because we just published that, right? And within seven days, now your white blood cell number goes down to over 20% in 72% of the, uh, of the subjects, right? And um, so, so now we know, for example, from cancer, from oncologists, that if you have a, even a temporary immunosuppression, uh, uh, you can have a problem. You can have an infection and die from it. And this is just one example. There is probably much more that happens when you push a system to the, that extreme. And this is what we've been really working very hard on. That's why we came up with fasting mimicking diets. We wanted to get the, all the good of fasting without the bad. And the bad is also not just this inf- exposure or sensitivity to infection. It's also an individual uh, starts running, and all of a sudden you have no sugar to burn, right? Because your sugar level is so low. So you now depend on the liver and gluconeogenesis to make this sugar. Uh, there is not enough, right? So now if you're on a, on a zero-calorie diet, most people will be endangered or, or certainly put in a, a condition which may put them in a dangerous uh, situation. And so, and this is where the fasting mimicking diet, and also the salts, right, and, and, and all kinds of micronutrients. Let's say that you were already deficient in B12, deficient in zinc, deficient in whatever mineral or vitamin. Now you go to zero. You go from deficiency to zero. And this could be the extra problem that you needed to uh, have a serious condition. Again, maybe an infectious disease. And this is where the mechanisms again come in. So if I understand it, I can get the good without the bad. And that's really what we've been focusing on for the past 10 years or so. Make this temporary, so shorten, make it once every two, three, four months for five days and make it relatively mild so that the restriction is only a calorie restriction. It's not a water-only fast, but it's a, a diet restriction. And then allow people to go back very quickly to their, their normal diet so that now the time that you're exposed is minimal. And the effects we're now showing are very long-lasting. Long 
Now, this is the, you've mentioned it several times, this is the fasting mimicking diet that, that I have done, I think it's 13 times now, and the first three times were during your study that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. It was once a month over a three-month period. I was one, I think, of the first 19 of 100 people who went through this regime for the study. And this was the first time that you'd really tested it on human beings. And I understand what it is. It involves a, a number of plant-based soups and tiny little energy bars and, and a few olives over a period of, of five days. Calorifically, I'm probably taking in maybe 1,100 calories on the first day and seven to 800 maybe on mm-hmm. days two to five. That was the regime. It all comes in little white boxes. It looks very scientific. It's, it's very easy to follow. You call it a fasting mimicking diet because it is mimicking the effects of fasting that you've just been describing without being a complete water fast. In other words, you, you can, you do have meals, albeit small meals, to look forward to during this period of time. Yeah, so it, it mimics fasting going after the, the fundamentals, right? The sugar and the proteins, as I mentioned earlier. So it lacks sugars and it lacks proteins. I mean, not completely. We have enough so that, uh, again, we minimize the danger of it. And, uh, and this was really key also because I wanted to make sure that our plan was to try to get it into the doctor's office, allow doctors uh, all over the world to say, I, I, I like to have an option to the drugs, or maybe I like to have a complementary intervention to the drugs, you know, for example, in the case of cancer. So I think we've achieved that, and uh, we published on the first 20 subjects, which included you, and, and the results were remarkable, and we, the first paper was mouse and the group of you, and uh, the 20 people. And now the rest of the group, you know, 100 subjects, uh, so this was a randomized 100-subject uh, uh, study. And I have to say that uh, the results are not disappointing. So, When so, you say they were remarkable, what was so remarkable about them? What was remarkable about it was the long-lasting nature of the intervention and the uh, width of the intervention, meaning it affected IGF-1, uh, not just during, but also after people returned to the normal diet. It affected inflammatory markers, C-reactive protein, and one of the risk factors for cardiovascular disease. It, it affected fasting glucose levels. Uh, the, the intervention lasted five days. And then, of course, uh, we measured the, these uh, risk factors before people uh, subjects started and then after one week of them returning to their normal diet. And so, uh, yeah, so then we saw many of these effects. Of course, uh, the other one really important is the weight loss, the abdominal fat weight loss without loss of muscle mass. And this is extremely difficult to achieve, right? And, and it makes sense, though, because these are, this is not really a long-term diet, which usually uh, these diets cause loss of water, loss of fat, but also loss of muscle. It's a, a temporary intervention that activates the burning of the abdominal and the visceral fat, and then in the refeeding period, uh, rebuilds the muscle cells uh, were destroyed during that process, right? So the, the whole body is affected temporarily, but then you rebuild the muscle, but not the fat. Of course, you don't want to rebuild fat. That would make no sense. So this is why we think it's, it's so powerful, and I think uh, soon enough we're going to go to the FDA probably proposing a, the use of this for diabetes prevention and metabolic syndrome, and this will be one of the first interventions, uh, products, let's say, for diabetes prevention, but also the prevention of cardiovascular diseases and, 
and most likely uh, cancer. And you call it a, a periodic fast, which is a term that I think a lot of people are not familiar with. It's a periodic intervention because you do need to continue to do it, whether it's every few weeks or few months, because for all those levels that we've just been talking about will come down, they will eventually go up again once you start feeding on a, a, a normal or in quotes a normal regular sort of diet you will go back to the original status quo from where you came from so you do need that intervention at periodic times right so a periodic and and to some people this period could be six months and uh, so if you have an ideal diet an ideal weight then probably a couple of times a year is all you need you need to do it for and, just to uh, bring yourself back into check? Just to get rid of uh, damaged cells, uh, just to decrease that abdominal fat, uh, which most people accumulate, even though they may be in a somewhat ideal diet. And many other things that we don't know of that are resulting in the results that, uh, that we see, you know, which, which go from a cognitive improvement to major decreases in inflammation. In mice, we see a 50% decrease in, in uh, tumor uh, generation uh, during the life, and on and on. So we, many different effects. And is this something you recommend for people who are otherwise healthy, normal human beings? It's a diet that's prescription only at the moment. You get it through your doctor, and presumably those people who are using it are at risk in in some sense, maybe they're overweight, they're obese, they're on the edge of getting diabetes. Or is it something that, like, for example, me, I've actually continued it with your guidance and talking to dietitians as well, even though I'm otherwise healthy. Is it necessary for someone like me, do you think, to have that kind of periodic intervention? It's not necessary. It is beneficial for everybody, at least to up to age 60, 65, 70 or so, and now we're trying to figure out whether there is a version for people that are above 70 that may be uh, more uh, suitable. As for everyone, rarely you'll find an individual that w will not have a, one of these risk factors or markers that are either out of the range, the, the, the ideal range, or close to being out of the ideal range. So I think it's, uh, it's something that everybody should consider. Uh, we're evolving a little bit and we're saying if you're healthy um, then a registered dietitian is probably and you know you're healthy and you have some uh, exams to show that, that you're healthy then your registered dietitian is all that, that you need. If you're not healthy then the doctor needs to um, approve and supervise uh, because now it's a decision on uh, should this be taken particularly dangerous is the use with drugs. Once you start introducing drugs, one or two or more drugs, now the combination, let's say insulin together with a fasting-making diet or metformin together so, with a So if you're on a diabetes treatment? If you're on a diabetes treatment, if you're on a hypertension drugs, and in most cases, you know, I will warn the doctor, think very carefully before you combine this uh, fasting-making diet with any drug. If the doctor makes the determination that the drug can be suspended for a short period, that is usually much, much safer. And you think this is, you, you believe this is better than a straightforward water fast for an equivalent period of time, even though the net result might be similar, but there are dangers 
you say for, for people in the general population to attempt a, a, a straightforward water fast for some people do it for three days for five days yeah absolutely so the the first of all water only fasting is extremely difficult to do uh, one is the calorie restriction but also the social aspect right i noticed it with me but of course i talked to thousands of people and most people just have to have something to eat on a regular basis and then of course the safety concerns when right? you you have no food at all and also you have no fats at all. And so we think that this may be one of the reasons why long fast, for example, our um, water-only fasting is associated with uh, gallstones, right? So now the system very frequently does not have any, any fats that need to be broken down, and this could be contributing to some of these uh, diseases. Of course, they also the um, going down to uh, water-only diet is going to affect uh, sugar levels and maybe go to very low levels. It may affect blood pressure level that, again, reaches very low levels. So you really have very little control of where somebody uh, is going to go with the water-only fasting, provided that they can finish it. And so this is why a few years ago we started saying this is probably not a good idea unless you're in a clinic. Uh, if you go and check into a clinic that specializes, like the Bookinger Wilhelmi Clinic in Germany, then, then I think it's fine. They have close to water-only fasting. And uh, in those settings, I think it's fine. They have a very good safety ra- record. So you're a, an enthusiastic proponent of periodic fasting, a fast that doesn't involve a, a total fast. It involves a prescribed diet over a period of five days. How does that differ from the diet that a lot of people have tried over the last few years, and it's very, especially in the UK, intermittent Fasting, the, the five-two diet that has become so well known—it's clearly a different regime. But are they similar in their net results? I mean, nobody knows. Uh, we uh, we have not compared them. Uh, they're very, very different, right? So one is uh, uh, something that you have to do every third day, basically for, for months and months, and it has the five-two diet that has uh, days where you have very low calorie intake, maybe five, six hundred calories. So they're, they're very, very different regimens. A lot of people swear by it. They say the 5-2 has been the best thing that they... I and mean, I think especially from a weight loss perspective, they say they've seen better results on, on that diet than anything else they've tried. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a good diet. I think that, well, in our case, we're not weight loss is not really what we're trying to achieve. I think we're trying to achieve, in the weight loss domain, we're trying to achieve abdominal fat loss without muscle loss, you know. So just in that particular domain, then we're trying to achieve much more in the regeneration of that. Of course, for example, you will have very limited regeneration, or if any, because you, you never go through the destruction process and there is nothing to rebuild if you don't destroy first. You know, that part, you know, the, the, the clearance of autoimmune cells, the, uh, the clearance of bad muscle cells, the clearance of precarcinogenic cells or cancer cells, all of that will require a much longer period. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there is theoretically a lot of reasons why the fasting, the longer fasting-making diet is going to be beneficial for all kinds of conditions that you might not see uh, sensitive to the 5-2. But, uh, you know, the 5-2 certainly is working for certain things. The question, the advantage, I think, compared to the fasting-making diet is, 
you, you may not need a doctor, or maybe if you need a doctor, you just maybe mention it to your doctor, and it's not really that, that demanding. But there are several uh, issues. One of them is, of course, you need every third day, you need to do something. So how long? Most of the times when you have to do something all the time, people drop out because it's just too invasive, and, and, and eventually you're just not going to want to do it. And also one concern, um, which hopefully people that work on the 5-2 will uh, address, is the, the sleep and eating patterns, right? And so, I mean, the body likes to eat at the same time, sleep at the same time. So, for example, you don't want to say, well, I stayed up on Friday night, and Saturday night I didn't sleep at all, but that's okay because I'm going to sleep 10 hours the rest of the week, right? We, we know that. And eating patterns and sleeping patterns have a lot of similarities. And so the question is, well, all of a sudden, you know, maybe not even on the same days, you're now moving, eating at certain times, eating a certain amount to completely change it. So what happens in the long run to your sleep pattern? What happens in the long run to your metabolism? I mean, so these are some of the things that, that need to be addressed in a very critical way. And of course, you know, we're doing the same for the uh, fasting-making diet. We're asking questions, you know, is there any side effects? You know, are there things that we should think about and that are going to come up, you know? I mean, our goal is not to have an agenda on, on something that it's good for the next couple of years, but it's to say, you know, 20 years down the road, did we get it right? You know, did we help a lot of people uh, live longer and healthier lives? Or are we going to get into the welfare situation where, you know, you, you're never going to develop uh, cardiovascular disease or diabetes or cancer, but then you get a rare modern neuron disease, right? It's, it's a very tricky uh, minefield. And I think whether it's the 5-2 or, or our diet, we really need to think on the other side, well, what could go wrong with this? And, and uh, so that's very important. And that's the minefield to do with any kind of longevity science, that, uh, the, the very nature of, of longevity. It's, it's something over a period of a very long time. And, and studying that with a group of people is extremely difficult. Yes, well, but this is why you want to have, like we have, multiple studies in mice and, uh, you know, mechanistic studies, and so, and genetic studies. And so when you put it all together, then you get a much more solid safety record. And also, I, I uh, go to the Bookinger Willamette Clinic and I'll ask them for their data. Can you show me your safety data? The True North Clinic. And so I always um, uh, had a major effort in trying to, if there's something wrong with it, let's find out, you know. And, and for example, one of the reasons we don't recommend this to be done by the 70-year-olds and older is when you put old, very old mice on it, they don't do very well anymore, especially if it's four days. Then we have to shorten the diet to three days, from four days to three days. Otherwise, old mice struggle because old mice, like all people, lose a lot of fat, right? So now what is a problem for younger mice and people it takes on a potentially protective role in older mice and older people. Some extra fat seems to be actually good, right? So... These are some of the tricks. It's very scary to try, you know, whether it's drugs or dietary intervention, to, to treat healthy people without thinking like that, like this. And I think there's a lot of people that are not yet thinking this way and thinking what could go wrong with this and not what is already going right. Just for uh, full disclosure, we've talked about the fasting mimicking diet. The food that the people use on this diet is produced by a company that you yourself found it. As a scientist, how does that work in terms of profits from the company and detaching yourself from that yeah. side of the business? Yeah, so so I don't take any consulting from the company. I don't take any salary from the company. 
and all my shares uh, will be donated, already assigned, and will be donated to a, a nonprofit foundation, so I, I cannot profit. Uh, and, and also, the royalties within the universities will be donated to research. Uh, so, yeah. And yeah, the, the this is a, a very hard choice that I had to make, but uh, um, I, uh, you know, I don't mind it, and uh, I think it was uh, the right thing to do. I mean, of course, there is ways to do it without this. I mean, I didn't have to do it. I could have. Uh, there are conflict of interest uh, strategies that are used by universities to make sure that I, I, I don't have the power to alter the data and all that. But, but I just felt that this was a much. Uh, better way to go forward and, and really eliminate the interest that I have and just uh, keep the interest to uh, to make this effective. You know? And in terms of your own personal interest, and I'm talking about your own personal longevity, what is your attitude for yourself in terms of growing old? You have your own dietary regime, and I think you're approaching a quite a significant birthday fairly soon. Yeah, yeah What kind yeah, of mindset yeah. are you in? I'm going to be 50 pretty soon. Uh, well, I, I just wrote a book uh, in in Italian, and now it's uh, it's going to come out hopefully in the UK and the US soon enough. It's called the Longevity Diet, and um, so I have a vegan pescetarian diet, um, and and this really comes from you know what do the Okinawans eat? What what about Costa Rica, the Southern Italians, the Loma Linda people here? You know, what all the successful people do, and and that's certainly one of the, the pillars that I've used in my decisions. And then uh, in the book, I talk about epidemiological studies. I talk about clinical studies. I talk about basic science focused on longevity. So th- all those are really key strategies to make sure it's not about what I think, but it's about what the data shows. And of course, I have to put it together as an expert. But I think that you know, in my book, is I have hundreds of, of, of uh, citations. And so I wanted to make sure, even though it's a book for everybody, for the lay audience, I wanted to make sure that the doctors uh, read it and the doctors or whoever is a professional can go and pick the paper and read the paper and then decide, you know, was I right, was I wrong? And I have to say, I had an extraordinary response from doctors in Italy, many, many, many doctors, and now clinics that are starting to implement it. So I think that it looks very promising. The same is happening here in the United States. There's over 600 doctors now that are recommending Prolon, which is the fasting making diet. Yeah, so I think it's, uh, we're, we're now seeing this as a reality and, and hopefully is a reality that uh, can move to the mainstream uh, by not just treating diseases or preventing diseases, by treating aging, right? So going after the aging process to, to have all these effects. A couple of things you mentioned, the pescatarian diet, vegan, essentially you have a little bit of fish maybe a couple of times a week as part of your diet. Yes, uh, fish a couple times a week. I keep the protein intake to about uh, 0.7 or so grams per kilogram or 0.35 grams per pound. And then uh, um, it's uh, mostly legumes and and vegetables, uh, relatively low fruit, a lot of uh, nuts, uh, walnuts. Which answers uh, that question that all vegetarians or vegans get is, where do you get your protein from? Yeah, the proteins uh, are from the legumes mostly. Yeah. And uh, so garbanzo beans and, and uh, beans and peas and, uh, and fish, of course. And then high nourishment is a, a, a big, uh, important part because many, many people, they go from, let's say, a meat-based diet to a vegan diet particularly, they become malnourished. And uh, now you can become deficient in, in vitamin B12, uh, deficient in calcium, 
deficient in vitamin D, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really important to also uh, really uh, focus on gaining everything that you need. And this is why it's good to talk to a nutritionist first. And not so much to get the recommendation of a nutritionist, because a lot of nutritionists to this day still recommend having six or seven meals a day. And there's really some really bad recommendations, which are clearly outdated, and, and they should no, no longer be, be part of our... Uh, I mean, they, they really accompany this obesity epidemic in the United States, right? They eat five times a day, and match very well the United States becoming 70% overweight and obese, right? And uh, also, uh, in the book, I talk about time-receptive feeding, what Sachin Panda has been working on in, in, in San Diego, which is, but I keep it to 12 hours. I say, for many different reasons, safety included, uh, I don't think it's probably such a good idea, unless you have a real weight problem, like your morbidly obese, to go past 12 hours. So 8 a.m., 8 p.m. is a good, uh, or let's say 9 a.m., 9 p.m., is a good range of, of uh, food intake. You know. A lot of people do 16-8, so they will fast essentially for 16 hours, have the evening meal, and then not eat again until late morning. Yeah. You think so that's pushing it a bit too far? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so for two reasons. One, again, you have to look at social aspects and what people can do and enjoy. If you don't enjoy it, it we already know it's going to be a failure, right? If you If you keep saying... I can't stand this because I can never have dinner with my friends. And if you have eight hours a day, you're going to have a problem, right? Either you skip breakfast or you're going to skip dinners. And then if you, if you skip one, one day and one the other, then you go back to the problem that I was telling you earlier. Now your body doesn't like it now because it's confused all the time, right? But, but uh, so that's a problem. And the other problem is potential side effects. Now we know there are data publications showing that gallstones for people that have uh, fasting periods, regular fasting periods that are longer than 12 hours, there is an increase in, in the formation of these gallstones in the gallbladder. And this is not, you know, they, they have to take it out. You know, it's not a very good uh, to, uh, you know, take a relatively young person and have to take parts of their body out because uh, they've used some of these uh, extreme strategies that, that lead to these this problems. Right? So these are, we need to study more, you know, and this is not a final decision. But, you know, for this reason and the fact that, there are, I think, better ways to do it, which is, you know, restrict to 12 hours. And then, for example, I talk about skipping, you know, one of the, the central meals a day, lunch, for example, right? Or you can skip dinner by have a snack for dinner, right? So you, you keep the 12 hours, but you have a light meal for dinner. This is very typical Loma Linda, for example, where they, they might have a, another, another longevity regions. They might have a light meal they eat about 11, 12 hours a day, and they have a light, light meal as their last meal. Loma Linda being a, a, a town just on the outside of, of Los Angeles, about 100 kilometers outside of L.A., it's a mostly Seventh-day Adventist community, so there's, there's a, a faith element to the lifestyle of, of the people there, but it's a, a, not entirely vegetarian or, or vegan. Some people eat meat, but very few people. It's very difficult, actually, to buy, to find a, a supermarket in, in Loma Linda that, that will sell meat. So it's a, a largely vegetarian community. It's a very active community, not necessarily going to the gym all the time, but people are just daily active, a lot of gardening, household tasks, that kind of thing. This is a significant because this is the longest-lived community in the United States in maybe an extra eight to ten years. So clearly they're doing something very important. Yes, there is no doubt that they're doing something. They're vegetarian usually. They're not vegan. And they have a pretty uh, open uh, um, food intake policy. I mean, they, they don't really watch everything that they do. 
But yeah, they're vegetarian. That's already a big, big difference compared to the rest of the United States. And uh, probably the fact that they're proud to be physically active and proud to be eating well and proud to be in a very good social uh, system where they, they help each other. And so all of those things are probably contributing, but I think that uh, still that the dietary component, the data indicates is much more powerful than the other uh, components, but that doesn't mean that the others are, are not also important. I spent some time there some time ago and made a, a BBC documentary. It, it is a fascinating community, and I'll, I'll be revisiting hopefully soon for some interviews that we'll hear on this podcast. I just want to finally ask you, Walter, you mentioned you're approaching your 50th birthday. Psychologically, how do you approach aging yourself? What is the great motivation in you when you get out of bed in the morning to do the kind of work that you do, but as it applies to your own life and your own vision of of what it's like to get old? Well, I don't have children yet, and I like to have children, so that's my major motivation. And now I really have to worry because um, even if I hurry up, I start doing the calculations, right? And when they're, uh, if I can have my uh, goal of three or four of them, then I'm going to have a problem, right? So I, I need to be a healthy 90-year-old. To look after the children, yeah. Exactly. So, so that's my motivation, I think. But, you know, also independently of the children, I think that to get to 100 healthy, I followed, as you know, Salvatore Caruso, who um, got to 110 in Italy, and I still have this video uh, where I play, and he sings, and he still remember this the songs very well. 107 years old, and Salvatore was really very enthusiastic, loved to be interviewed, and loved to to go for the record. And I think that's great. He was very self motivating. Yes, yes, he was, and and of course he also uh, was following all my recommendations. And uh, because you wanted to make sure, for example, in this case, it was like eat more, right, and, and need more variety and, and some tricks that to him are, are uh, very different from those uh, for everybody else. And then Emma Morano, who now is the oldest, and I was just there in Lago Maggiore in Italy for her 117th birthday. And Emma is now the oldest person who've ever, who's ever lived in Italy. And very soon, she's going to be the third oldest person in the recorded, in the history of the planet. Unbelievable, right? Only after Madame Calmont of France, who got to 122, and I think uh, American or Japanese woman, I forget. Emma is in very good shape. She still remembers everything. She's still very jealous of her pictures and and I, I, um, is this I the a, lady that likes three eggs a day? It is the lady that likes right. three eggs a day. And, of course, all you journalists love to talk about these three eggs a day. But nobody <laughs> has talked about the fact that every, almost every single one of her brothers and sisters and mother and father made it over the age of 90, which means that almost for sure they have a genetic component like the Larons that is so protective. It doesn't really matter what they eat they're going to make it to very old ages, right? So, And we know that. We know that you could get there by watching everything and be very careful. And 99.9% of the people will not have the benefits of the genetics, of that kind of genetics. It's super, so protective that everybody makes it to age 90. But yeah, some people are very lucky. And, uh, and if you're very lucky, then you can do whatever you want and you still 
get the advantage. Walter, it's been absolutely fascinating. Happy birthday when it comes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Okay. Good to see you. And Professor Walter Longo is on Facebook if you want to get more information about his work. And as he said, fasting can be extremely dangerous. Please do not try to replicate anything we discussed as part of your own dietary regime. This podcast does not provide medical advice. You should always consult a doctor if you're considering a new diet or workout. Well, that's it for episode one. Thanks very much for listening. Our website is llamapodcast.com and we're on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.